And Father, as we re remain here and open your word together, please would you bless us, fill us with your Holy Spirit to teach us truth, to shine light to our eyes and hearts, to make us love you more. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, in preparing our teachings, uh, my wife Sarah and I had exactly the same idea this week uh, to think about prequels completely independently. Um, there is a prequel out in the theaters right now, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, uh, the prequel to The Hunger Games. It tells the origin story of President Snow. And by my count, this brings our culture into its 24th year of its love affair with origin stories. I date it back to Star Wars The Phantom Menace, which came out in 1999. Um, 24 years of loving prequels and origin stories. So in the 70s and 80s, it was all about sequels, what comes next in the story. Today, uh, the big fanaticism seems to be, the big money seems to be in uh, prequels. We want to know what came first, what came before. And at the same time as we've seen that in our movies, we also have this crazy trend of um, where did I come from, right? So if, uh, websites like uh, Ancestry.com, DNA tests like 23andMe uh, make big profits. We live in a culture that's fascinated by origin stories. We want to know where we have come from, maybe even more than where we're going. Now that, friends, should make us all big fans of the Old Testament. Uh, whether you're a believer or a non-believer, you should be diving into this book right now because uh, one, one way to think about the Old Testament, as Sarah said, is it's one long extended origin story for the whole world. It's the story of how all of us got here, told right from the very beginning. And uh, along the way, the Old Testament answers some very relevant questions for us right now. Like, where did the IDF come from, the Israeli Defense Force? It's in the Bible. Where did Hamas come from? It's in the Bible. What happened in the Gaza Strip 3,000 years ago? Read it in the Old Testament. Where did we get the name Palestinian? It's in the Bible. Spoiler, it's a Latinization of the word Philistine. Where did Jesus come from? That is most especially the origin story that the Old Testament wants to tell. Uh, all the other questions are interesting, but they're side questions to that main question, aren't they? Where did Jesus come from? Uh, and the very short answer, the 23andMe answer, is that he was the son of Mary, who was descended from King David of the tribe of Judah. So today I want to think about the tribe of Judah. Where did Judah come from? That's the part I want to investigate here on the first Sunday of Advent. Um, and for that, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 29. So can we open our Bibles? It's quite early on, page 23 of your Bibles. Uh, Genesis chapter 29. So uh, as, as it came up to my turn to preach for the first Sunday of Advent, the readings again were all about Abraham, and I felt a little bit like, oh, I'm kind of tired of talking about Abraham. Let's pick a different patriarch, and as I looked through, I was like, the one I want to talk about is Leah. We're not going to have a patriarch today, we're going to have a matriarch. I want to talk about Leah. Um, throughout the story of Genesis, which tells the stories of the patriarchs, you notice just how important the women, the wives are in the story, and uh, no less here in Genesis 29. Leah, I think, is quite an unsung hero of the Old Testament story. So today I want to sing about Leah. And it's a song in three parts. Part one is origins, part two, mistakes, and part three, arrival. 
So first, part one is origins. We meet Leah in Genesis chapter 29, verse 16, in quite an unflattering light, because uh, it says, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. So the very first thing that we learn about Leah is that she wasn't very pretty. And to make matters worse, she had a younger sister who was a famous beauty. So already, we've introduced a painful dynamic between the sisters. And we might wonder then, what was wrong with Leah's appearance? Um, it says she had weak eyes, uh, using a word that means young or tender. And modern interpreters aren't really sure what that means. Uh, could it be that it's an idiom to mean that Leah was just weak on the eye? Uh, not much of a looker. Um, does it mean that she had poor eyesight? Maybe she was blind or was afflicted with some sort of eye disease. Uh, we don't think it was probably that. Um, the, the favorite opinion is that it meant she had blue eyes. Uh, Leah had blue eyes, that they were weak in color. There's a suggestion that uh, ancient Hebrew culture viewed dark eyes as healthy and strong and blue eyes as a weakness. So that could have been all that was wrong with Leah. She had blue eyes. Um, we can't know for sure, but one way or another, Leah was demoted in local esteem based on a small detail of her personal appearance. And many of us can no doubt relate to the pain of that. Um, then into her story comes this guy, Jacob, who makes matters a whole lot worse. Um, and I want to briefly trace the origin story of Jacob so we know why, who he was and why he was important. And I want to start right from the top, starting with Adam and Eve, the first parents. So right from the beginning of the story, Adam and Eve had a line of sons that went down to Noah. That took 1,600 years. Then came the Great Flood, which wiped out the entire human race except for Noah and his family. Eight people were saved. The earth got a reset. Noah's three sons were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And all of humanity today draws its ancestry from one of those three streams. The line of Shem produced Terah, who was the father of Abram. Uh, so Abram was a Semite, which means he was a descendant of Shem. And all the children of Abraham then are also Semites, and that is why hatred of the Jewish people is called anti-Semitism. Uh, but the group of Semites is much larger than just Jewish people because it also includes all of the Arab peoples too and probably many more people groups in the world besides. But importantly, it did not include the ancient Canaanites because they were from the line of Ham. So anyway, Abram was a Semite, uh, but his father Terah moved the family away from their home in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is in modern Iraq, and they went northwest along the Fertile Crescent uh, up into what's now southern Turkey. Terah moved with his three sons, remember this, Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and they left Ur and went up into Turkey, and when they got to Turkey, Haran, uh, the son, died, and he left behind just two daughters who were called Milka and Iska. Um, and in order to preserve his brother's line and his brother's name, Abram's brother Nahor married his own niece, Milka, right? And they had a son called Bethuel. 
Then Bethuel had two children. Uh, there was Rebekah, and she ended up as Isaac's wife. And then the other child Bethuel had was Laban, who was the father of Leah and Rachel. Notice how intertwined this all is, uh, all intermingled. So uh, although the patriarchs lived in the land of the Canaanites, they refused to take Canaanite wives. They expended great effort not to intermarry with the Canaanites, and instead they went back to their own source family in southern Turkey to find wives. And in this way, the covenants of God to Abraham were kept very much in the family. Uh, Isaac married Rebekah, who was his own niece. They were about the same age, but Isaac was born so late in Abraham's life that it was like a generation got skipped. Um, and then the son of that marriage, Jacob, married two of his own first cousins. Now that sounds weird and maybe immoral to us today. Uh, and indeed, this kind of behavior was about to be prohibited by the law of Moses in Leviticus 18, no marrying close family members. But it wasn't prohibited yet at this point in the story. And we would have to say it doesn't seem to have had any negative DNA effects. Uh, the line of Abraham has done rather well since, both physically and mentally. And as we look at Jacob, what we find is a very fine specimen of a man. Uh, Jacob was unusually strong, even by the high standards of his day. And we discover that here in chapter 29. Because uh, Jacob uh, meets Rachel at a well. And we find out that the well was covered by a large stone. And it was a stone so heavy that three shepherds together couldn't move it. Uh, Jacob arrives, and there are three flocks, therefore three shepherds at the well. And they have to wait for the rest of their party to arrive before they can think about moving the stone. Shepherds were no kind of weaklings. They were a strong bunch, but three of them couldn't move this stone. And yet, when Rachel showed up in verse 10, Jacob got up and moved the stone by himself, uh, which he obviously did to be a show-off. Uh, he was already smitten with Rachel, love at first sight. And so we learned that Jacob was an impressive physical specimen. We also know that he was the inheritor of God's promises to Abraham. And then fortunately, he arrives at the well and instantly falls in love with the very woman that he's supposed to marry. So it all sounds like the makings of a fairy tale. But the plot of this story is about to take a turn for the worse. This isn't going to be any kind of Disney love story. And that's mostly thanks to Rachel's selfish and manipulative father, Laban. So uh, now we come to part two of Leah's song. And this is the part that's about mistakes. All the protagonists of this story make some serious mistakes or are guilty of downright wickedness. And so we come to something profoundly important that we need to understand about the Bible, especially as we read through the narratives of the Old Testament. We, on the strength of our Lord Jesus, believe that the Bible is God's word, that every verse is true and infallible, including the Old Testament. We believe it was written by human hands under the guidance and inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, and it is the only perfect material thing in this wretched, ruined world. We are broken, it is whole. We are foolish, and it is wise. Nevertheless, the perfection of God's word does not extend to the people written in it, even when that word counts those people as heroes. So just because Jacob was a patriarch does not exonerate all his actions. The point of the whole story of scripture is not that God's people are great, 
The point is that God is great. His people are quite often punks uh, from the earliest day until now. They are rascals and scoundrels, even villains sometimes. Look at Samson, who was called a man of great faith. It's really hard to find anything he did that wasn't wicked. Um, the three largest contributors to God's sacred word were Moses, David, and Paul, and all three of them were murderers. And yet God reveals his own glory by showing mercy to sinners, by accomplishing perfection through imperfect creatures, by drawing a straight line with a crooked stick. If you think the message of the Bible is try to be good, then you have the whole thing completely wrong. The message of the Bible is you're not good, and God loves you anyway. So then, the mistakes of this passage are not examples for us to follow, and what is sad and broken here is not being held up for us to call good. But God is good, and we should marvel at what he accomplishes here through these people when he doesn't even say a word. The chief mistake-maker in this passage is Laban, the father of Rachel and Leah. And Laban, guys, he's a real piece of work. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Laban first promises that Jacob can marry his younger daughter, Rachel, in exchange for seven years of free labor in verse 20. And the Bible gets unusually schmaltzy at the end of that verse when it says, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Um, so he serves her for seven years. And then at the end of seven years of free labor, Laban tricks Jacob by giving him Leah instead of Rachel. And like, you, you have to sit in the study and wonder how he did this. Like, what level of planning and uh, would it take to accomplish this? Did he have Leah in the dress the whole time, hidden behind the veil? Or did he just switch Leah out in the dark of the honeymoon suite? And what on earth did he do with Rachel during that time? Tie her up and gag her in a broom closet? How many servants did Laban have to bring into this wicked scheme to make it work? As we put it all together, this is just a dastardly trick for him to play. In doing it, he blasphemes God, he desecrates marriage, he sets his own nephew and both of his daughters up for a lifetime of misery. What a scoundrel Laban was. Jacob went to bed in the dark with his new wife, and he woke up in the light of day to find Leah. And verse 25 is almost cartoonish in its shock horror. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Um, and we have to think, poor Leah, like what a horrible position to be in. Unimaginably miserable. She had just one night in her life of being loved, and that was under false pretenses. And then she was locked in for the rest of her life into a marriage she never asked for, where she was unloved and unwanted. She was traded like property between two men who cared nothing for her well-being. And also poor Rachel, who had waited seven years for her, the husband who loved her, only to lose him to her sister. And poor Jacob, who had behaved pretty honorably thus far, working hard for Laban and waiting for Rachel. What was he supposed to do now? So Laban creates such a miserable situation for all three of them. And what Laban forces Jacob to do is work another seven years for Rachel in verse 27. Whew. So Laban here proves himself a real piece of work. 
Um, and it's pretty satisfying that by the end of the story, Laban, uh, uh, sorry, Jacob has found a way to get his own back by leaving in secret with both daughters, all of Laban's grandchildren, all the healthy animals of Laban's flocks, a bunch of his servants, and even Laban's own household idols. <laughs> the scoundrel at the end of the story is left pretty much bankrupt and destitute. Jacob, Leah, and Ra Rachel are all victims of his handiwork, and the situation they find themselves in is one that none of them would have chosen. And they do, for the most part, seem to honor the covenant of marriage going forward, as far as one can with two wives. Jacob does end up giving Leah six sons and a daughter. But nevertheless, Jacob and the two sisters compound the misery of their situation in chapters 29 and 30 by additional sins and mistakes. And these are not excused just because they themselves were victims. Uh, Jacob stubbornly refused to ever love Leah or to honor her for the gift of sons that she repeatedly gave him, which in their culture was a woman's chief glory. In that way, he behaves much more according to 21st century values of beauty and romantic love than to ancient values of honor and childbearing. He never let Leah forget that Rachel was his favorite wife. The story of the birth of the 12 sons is a story of conflict and misery. It's two sisters at war, one loved, one uh, one not loved, one not fruitful. The unloved sister cannot win love through her fruitfulness, and the unfruitful sister cannot gain fruit through her belovedness. They both want more than anything in the world what the other sister has, and both turn that pain into spite and coldness toward the other, as the names of their sons demonstrate. Dan, God has judged between me and my sister. Naphtali, with mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and I have prevailed. Issachar, God has given me my wages. Zebulun, my husband will now honor me. These are the names of the noble tribes of Israel. This is the family to which God has attached his own name forever. And here we read their origin story, and what we find is a family mess. But then, within all this mess, something very profound happens in Leah, and this is part three of her song, The Arrival. Laban and his daughters, we remember, were not included in God's covenants with Abraham before Jacob came along. They did not know God at all. They were not Yahweh worshippers. Laban and his daughters were pagans. Laban had household idols. But somehow, after Jacob arrives on the scene, despite all of the relational chaos that we've been talking about, Leah comes to know the living God. And we see this at the end of chapter 29 in the four-step process marked by the births of her first four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. So I want you to look and see this with me. We're starting at verse 32. It says, Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Reuben means see a son. And Leah declares that the Lord has seen her. The Lord, the proper name of God, the name he revealed to Moses, Yahweh, uh, has seen her. And notice that Leah is grateful to the Lord for the gift of a son, but she, what she wants most out of that gift is her husband's love. Then we come to step two, which is verse 33. 
it says, she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Simeon means heard. And his name represents a step forward for Leah. Now God is not just looking and seeing her. He's also hearing and responding to her. So it's more personal and relational this time. But Leah is still viewing the main problem as Jacob's hatred. Then we get to step three, verse 34. It says, again she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And this name is a bit of a pun. Attached in Hebrew is the word lavar, but it's actually a different word from the son's name, Levi. And Levi translates more directly as my heart. But the heart that Leah wants is still her husband's. The big change comes in step four. Verse 35 says, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. And it really seems like Leah gives up at this point on ever receiving what she most wanted, which was Jacob's love and affection. And that is deeply sad. But at the same time, we can see her starting to want something else more. She started to want God himself, the one who's been seeing her, hearing her, and responding to her all along. This time, I will praise the Lord. She gives her fourth son a very special name. Judah comes from the Hebrew word yada, which can mean praise, but far more often in the Hebrew Bible, it means confess. In the law, it's used to say, when my people confess their sins, so Leah says at the end, this time I will confess the Lord. Leah has taken a real journey and arrived in a remarkable place. He sees, he hears my heart, I will confess, are the names of her four sons. And it's a multi-year process of Leah coming to know the Lord personally and putting her trust in him. She lays down her longing for her husband's love and receives God's love for her as her chosen portion instead. And so here Leah gives us kind of an amazing example of the heart and essence of faith. This is what makes Leah a true matriarch, a light to the world. And there's kind of even more to this story because the name of Judah is a very special name. I want to show you this on the screen. I know that most of you don't read Hebrew, but hopefully you can see this anyway. It's kind of small. Okay, uh, here's the word for confess in Hebrew. Remember, Hebrew you read... Uh, Right to left, thank you. Suddenly lost, lost left and right in my head. You read right to left in Hebrew. So that's yada, which is confess. Underneath it, I want to show you Judah's name. This is Yehuda, Judah. So you can see it does have the letters of confess in it, but there's two extra letters, this who in the middle, which really doesn't make any sense, except for this third word down at the bottom. Here is the name Yahweh. This is the Lord, right? Yahweh. Uh, and notice that the, there's actually more correspondence in the name Judah with the bottom word, the Lord, than there is in the word Yada at the top. Okay, so what Leah has done in this name, she says, this time I will confess the Lord, and she has put both those words into Judah's name. She's kind of merged them together into his name. And this is the only name in Hebrew in the Old Testament that contains all four of the letters of Yahweh in it in the right order. So it's a very special name. 
Um, so I wanted to show you, we can clear that now. I wanted to show you that the name of Judah is very clever. It's a kind of pun. It's the only name in Hebrew that incorporates all the letters of the divine name of God. And this becomes very significant as the story progresses. Because which tribe ends up being the tribe of kings, the tribe of David? It's Judah. And what happens to the kingdom after the kingdom of Israel splits in half? The north gets called Israel. The south gets called Judah. Then the northern half is exiled to Assyria and essentially destroyed there. The southern kingdom of Judah is exiled to Babylon, and its people become known in Babylon as the Jews. That name crops up for the first time in the book of Esther. It's probably a derogatory nickname given to them by the Babylonians, but it's stuck, and it obviously derives from the name Judah. Now, I want you to draw your attention to 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. I want us to turn to this. Page 364, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. This comes right after Solomon has built and dedicated the temple. Page 364, 2 Chronicles 7. Still hearing rustling pages. Okay, so this is a really big deal. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Here God says to King Solomon, after he builds the temple, chapter 7, verse 14, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. What does God mean in this verse that his people are called by his name? My Israeli tour guide this summer was convinced that the only thing it can mean is that the very name of God is embedded within the name of Judah, which is a name that his people have come to be known by still to this day. And I believe that she is right. And that, friends, is all thanks to Leah. It's thanks to Leah's faith and her witness that poor, unlovely, and unloved woman who was traded as property and treated so abominably has yet been elevated to this high place in history by her faith and her allegiance. She has such a lofty role in the grand story. To have named the tribe of David, more than that, to have named the entire chosen race of God with a glorious and sacred name. A little bit later on in Genesis, Joseph is going to have a dream. And in that dream, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars are bowing down to him. Do you remember it? It's a prophetic dream that comes to pass before the end of Joseph's life. Where is Leah in that dream? She's the moon, isn't she? Jacob interprets it, will your mother and I bow down to you? And Rachel, by this point, is long dead. The moon, the mother, is Leah. She's a luminary in God's story, a guiding light. And so today, we light the first Advent candle for Leah. And I will just ask as we close, what does all this history mean for the Jewish people today? And the answer of the New Testament is they have not lost their specialness or their chosenness or their belovedness in God's sight. God still acts toward them in accordance with his covenants and promises to Abraham, Moses, and David. They were never chosen in the first place because of loveliness or special goodness or giftedness, and they have often sinned and done wickedly and departed from the Lord all the way through the story. 
And just like everybody else, just like the rest of us do, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And yet, Paul writes that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. When we are faithless, God remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. And what we've learned from our history lesson today is that people who bear the name of Jew still bear the name of God. So then while all kinds of racism are evil, the hatred of Jewish people is a particular kind of blasphemy on account of the name they bear. What this means is that to hate the Jews is to hate God. And that's why so many of the works of Satan in this world produce anti-Semitism. Indeed, we know the Jewish people are lost insofar as they refuse the saving grace of their Messiah, Jesus. But we who know Jesus wait with tears for the people who bear the divine name to be found. May it be so, Lord Jesus, in our days. May this season of Advent mark a new kind of coming of your glory into this dark world. Come, Emmanuel, rise like the morning star in the Middle East and usher in a bright new day. Amen.